Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present their argument, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include the collapse of the Surfside condominium complex and the future of the city post-COVID. Our first speaker will be Martin Paul. Marty has been a lecturer at UCLA's Architecture School for the past quarter of a century. He teaches a class in structures to a generation of architecture graduate students. He is the perfect expert to ask about the Surfside condo catastrophe. I've read all the newspaper articles about the disaster, but I still don't fully appreciate what the critical variables that preceded the downfall. In complex systems, it usually requires several points of failure. Well, I plan to get into the weeds and find out what the likely causes were, what lessons can be learned, and how safe it is to live in large condominium buildings. Our second speaker will be Edward Glazer. Besides being a good personal friend of mine, Ed is also the Fred and Eleanor Glimm Professor of Economics and the Chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. Ed is also the author of the recently entitled book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Ed is an urban economist and he is an expert in the life and death of cities. COVID-like, any pandemic makes city living dangerous as proximity to others is problematic and often outweighs the economic synergies. Ed will be speaking about how cities will adapt and prosper post-COVID. During the live call, please feel free to email me questions at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. Before I turn it over to Marty in our, as our first topic, I want to open with a quote from the mayor of Surfside, who said, buildings like this don't fall down in America. This is a third world phenomena. All right, as far as I know, uh, the greater Miami uh, area is still in America and the building still fell down. Marty, take it away. Hi. I was horrified when I first saw the video of the collapse of Champlain Towers. What could have caused such a significant structure to fail? Without an explosion, my first guess was a sinkhole. I've since watched many videos, read numerous news articles, no sinkhole. Many engineers have started to talk about weak concrete, congested steel, how rusting steel expands, spalling, and how awful salt water is in the cracks of concrete structures. These may all be true and may be contributory, even central, to why the collapse happened that day. But the video of the collapse says other things too, things I don't hear yet in the discussion. I see a local failure in a parking structure leading to a disproportionate response from an adjacent 13-story apartment building. This is classic progressive collapse. Maybe the parking structure design and, con and construction were built to code. Maybe they weren't. The investigations will tell us that. But code is not the good housekeeping seal of approval. Building to code is not an endorsement of the project. It's a level that says, if you build below this, we'll stop you. Code is just the beginning. I'm concerned about the questions being asked by the investigators. Will they ask other questions, pursue issues other than strength of the materials, sizes of the columns? Will they look at the philosophy of the design, of the process? NIST, the federal agency doing the major investigation, is a very capable organization, but I haven't heard risk being a major part of the discussion yet. I hope it is. Design approach includes strength and risk. Strength asks how to keep a structure up, 
Risk asks, what happens if the structure fails? Surfside code requires recertification when a building is 40 years old, but corrosion left to continue for three to five years can lead to disaster. It accelerates. Timing is a part of risk. It needs to inform rules like this. Are these two buildings, the apartment tower and the parking structure, actually of the same type? They're both steel-reinforced concrete buildings of similar spans from column to column. Sounds quite similar. But look at them from a risk point of view. Which is more likely to be overloaded, an apartment house roof or an open plaza with room for new planters and trees being moved around with forklifts? Which is more likely to have corrosion from leakage continue? If the apartment tower roof leaks, the tenants will scream bloody murder until it's fixed. In the parking structure, there's no such rush. Hang some corrugated sheathing from the ceiling to protect your car, but otherwise wait. These two buildings are very different from looked at from the angle of risk. Why attach them to each other? Collapse of some of the columns of the parking structure means that some of the columns of the tower will also collapse. They're the same columns. Have separate columns restructure. Interrupt progressive collapse. Knowing what happened is important. Was the concrete the proper strength? Was the steel so densely placed, so congested that the concrete couldn't bond to it? Were the drawings followed properly during construction? But are other fundamental questions also being asked? Approaching structural design from a risk or performance point of view might not have allowed a rather vulnerable parking structure, poorly maintained and located where saltwater-driven corrosion could progress easily, to be attached to an apartment building. In this case, it appears likely that the pool deck, the roof of the parking structure, dropped from the columns, called punching shear, dragging some columns towards the center of the parking area, pulling them out from under the apartment tower. Could the slab connection have been designed to withstand the shear? Yes, but the final choices could have been motivated by risk control. Should a risk analysis replace strength analysis? No, they're intimately related. Study failure modes in addition to success modes. Also consider redundancy, groupthink, complacency, and communication. We need to know how to prevent this type of collapse in the future. But we have another issue. What should we do with hundreds or thousands of existing buildings that are similarly vulnerable or vulnerable in other ways? Should risk analysis be included when recertifying existing structures, even if, and maybe especially if, it was not part of the original design? This has been a central issue in California, where earthquake-resistant design standards and methods have changed enormously in recent years. It's a hot issue. When the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded in 1986, the Rogers Commission did an extensive study of the disaster. Among other things, the rubber O-rings were found to have eroded and at low temperatures failed. Richard Feynman, on the commission at the time, criticized NASA's evaluation of risk and the internal and external communication about it. He insisted on writing an addendum to the report that ended with, for successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations. 
for nature cannot be fooled. Thanks, Larry. Perfect. Um, I want to go um, back first to the quote I gave you about um, the Surfside mayor said this was this doesn't happen in America. This is a third world phenomenon. Um, first, is is he right? And was no. it about the third world that this is more common? What what sort of failures do they have? What are they cheating on? Are they cheating on strength? Are they excel, you know working you know with more risk? What, what's going on in the third world? Well, they they. Not everybody waits for permits. Not everybody does inspections. Not every, not, and the neighbors don't necessarily care sometimes. Like it is not at all uncommon for a concrete frame building, say a three-story building, to be built. And when you see it, and now it's finished, and you walk by, and you see rebar sticking out of the top of the, of the top columns. What are they there for? They're there because afterwards, the owner is going to add another one or two stories to the building illegally. And the neighbors don't necessarily look at it and say, oh my God, this guy is making the whole neighborhood dangerous. They say, he's a smart guy. He's going to be able to rent out two additional spaces. Right? So it's a very different kind of approach. In general, we don't do that in this country. But in general, is much bigger than, what about this building? All right, let's go to the topic of uh, risk and reward. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm in the finance business. Um, and as part of that, in every decision, every day, we have to evaluate um, the potential reward, the potential risk, and even the distribution of risk. Is it lopsided to the negative or the positive? Um, and we consider that in a portfolio context. Here, um, when you're doing architecture, there's no sort of diversification of risk. It's not like you have a portfolio of buildings. Um, we have to focus on you know, the risk of collapse or disasters um, for each specific event. What, um, what is the current the uh, theory on how to apply risk in building structures, and how should we think about it differently going forward? Well, risk is being added more and more to our analysis. We, we look at like minimal structures. There are structures, say, a roof over a sports arena that uh, of a complicated um, three-dimensional truss system with, that might be so optimized in its design that the failure of one member could bring, bring down the entire building. And so redundancy becomes, for instance, in that case, something to be looked at. And we do more of it than we used to. But it isn't that long ago, and there are loads of buildings still there, where this was not looked at. And it's not even generally a part of everyday discussion, which is part of what concerns me. You mentioned um, salt water as being particularly corrosive. And so let's start with, with salt water as the first example. You know, there are like there was that hurricane in New Orleans, um, twice major, huge saltwater yeah. flooding. And um, is is saltwater corrosion, is example a flood, really problematic, or is it the constant uh, salt in the air eating away at the concrete? How, how do we think about um, an enormous percentage of America now lives on these saltwater um, areas? Um, yeah, how risky is it? What really damage does it do? It's really both. Here's, here's the real problem. Concrete is a material that's great in compression, and it's awful in tension. 
and tension is required in structures. And so we put steel in to take the tension, and the two of them together are what give the building strength. But they need to be bonded to each other successfully in order for them to work. And when steel starts to rust, and salt water rusts it faster, when steel starts to rust, two things happen. One is the rust flakes off the steel, so the, the concrete is bonded to the rust, not to the steel anymore. And the other, which is even worse, is that rusting steel expands. And so it pushes out from the inside and explodes the concrete. And so rusting steel is a major problem. And salt water does it even faster. So what sometimes happens, like in the case here, a concern is they were driving forklifts around or things like that to put in the planters and so on. Did that make for little micro cracks in the concrete? Because concrete is not really impervious to water to begin with, but little cracks make it worse. Okay, then, then water is getting into the steel even faster. And salt water is just relentless. It's hard to keep it back. And once it gets in there, a process will start. We've used in recent years that, you know, like for bridges and stuff, there's epoxy coated steel, which is having its problems because the epoxy cracks and so on. There's stainless steel that can be used. There's galvanized steel that can be used. The point is that it's such a recognized problem that we continue to work on how to fix it because it's a big deal. You know, the, the, um, the city has this 40-year certification process. Uh, the building um, was aware of that. They, they were cognizant of that. They were more cognizant of the 40-year certification than their own safety in many ways. They hired an engineering firm, and the engineering firm came back with some suggestions, but it was expensive. Um, the head of the board recommended doing some changes, and she was yelled at, screamed at. She cried. She, um, she resigned. Um, we have a situation where we have a group of non-engineers put in charge of evaluating a report from an engineer and then giving that report to people who also aren't experts. How are these communities supposed to evaluate these risks? Um, why were the reports written in a way suggesting that um, the building wasn't about to fall down? And how as a community should we make decisions in the context of both government and, um, and a, a board and a, a a condominium group? It's a, it's a major, major question. You know, we don't have a specific method of dealing with issues like that. But take something like the 40-year certification. In this country, heart disease affects mainly men in the range of 40 to 50. That's when the numbers start to go up. And, you know, it gets really significant. And everybody knows that. And so would you do your first examination of a male patient when he's 35 or 40? Or wouldn't you start much earlier? Because you can't necessarily reverse these things easily. And the problem with something like a 40-year certification is it gives permission to wait until the 40 years comes up. That, that's a real problem. You know, off, it's not at all unusual that when you set a minimum standard, it becomes the maximum result. That people won't do more than what the minimum calls for. 
right? It's hard to legislate, then what should the minimum be? Make it high enough. But, you know, part of engineering responsibility, part of human responsibility is to look beyond those things. And it's not, it's not an easy problem. Which, you know, going back to the board for a second, the board, it, I was on the board of my condo association. It's a 50-story building. Um, there were no engineers on the board. We had uh, an engineer who worked uh, for the, you know, the management of the building. Uh, he would provide an annual report. But we never, you know, none, the questions were like, how long was the useful life of the roof? Uh, it was never a question of, you know, does the sway of the building result in micro problems that could result in the building coming down? Um, how how should non-experts in this area evaluate these sort of questions? And should they be more proactive? Um, or are they going to be afraid that if they are more proactive and they find something uh, and they don't do something, now they can go to jail? I mean, what, what, what where is ignorance yeah. play in this sort of risk? Well, take, take something like your situation in particular. I would want the part of the responsibility of that engineer to be that on a regular basis, I don't know, three years, five years, or whatever, do exactly the kinds of questions that you said. He may not be capable himself of answering them, but he could be responsible for pursuing it. And that that would be an expectation, that that's what the responsibility of the engineer is. He would deal with problems that happen as they happen. The front door broke, and how do we fix that? And then who do we call? But also, on a regular basis, worked out with him, you know, or others, what kinds of big questions should be asked? Even if the, the consultant that comes in says, you don't have a problem here. Great. Thank you. See you next time. But we have to be purposeful about it. If you were um, going to live in a community like Miami Beach, would you want to live in a condominium or would you want to live in a single family home given the risks of... Um, massive flooding and hurricanes? I would be reluctant to be in a concrete structure within, I don't know, a quarter of a mile of, of the ocean. You know, or at least I'd like to know how it was, how it was, how it was built. But, and I don't mean someone tell me personally, but a real expert be looking at that. But also, how is it aging? And on a regular basis, I want to hear about it. If at the end of 40 years we'll tell the, the state and the city about it, that's nice too. But I'm not moving in unless I have some idea of what condition this is in beyond just somebody standing outside and saying, it looks great to me. You know, millions of Americans live within a quarter of a mile of the ocean. Um, yes. And <laughs> millions. And I'm just wondering, you know, we, we talked about risk earlier. You know, there's all sorts of risks. Um, you know, obviously, there's a risk of a building falling down and, and corrosion. Um, you know, there's also the risk that your house can burn down or that uh, you can be robbed and burglarized and, you know, you're murdered. So how, how risky is it uh, compared to the, some of these other risks that you take every well, day? Yeah. I mean, I, going, know, ba- going back to the mayor, Surfside, it doesn't happen in America. This, this is like the only building we know of that's come down. Is it, just a, is it really once in a blue moon or is it something that is of real concern? Well, first of all, it's not really true that these don't happen because yeah. things like parking lots collapsing do happen. They're not that, un- they're not that unheard of. Um, the question is, in this case, being attached to an apartment house. You know, it's not the apartment house that failed here, understand. 
right? It was really the parking structure that failed. But in terms of, you know, how risky, well, everything has risk, I get it. And it's hard to compare one risk to another to another. But there are those where you feel like, well, but this one I could do something about. And others, maybe I can't do something about. Just nice to be knowledgeable. Well, I mean, you know, these are, I, I've often heard like um, every building will, fall, uh, will burn down at some point, given enough time, as an example. Um, right. But when I compare a single family home fire risk with a fire risk at a condominium, uh, the fire well, risk, let, I let think. Me, let me back you up for a second. Yeah. The reason we have fire codes and so on is not to protect the building. It's to protect the people. So when a building, a multi-story building, say a four-story building, has corridors that are fire rated for, say, one hour, that means there's about an hour for people to get out of the building before the building is at risk of collapsing. The collapse of the building, the burning of the building, that's between the insurance company, lawyers, and so on. The, the rules that we have are about protecting people. But you saw is in this case, the building collapsed in 10 seconds. Yeah. So nobody's getting out, right? But, you know, I want to know that in my house, um, I could get out of the building. Every, every, every bedroom needs to have an egress needs to have a way to get out, right? That's not protecting the building from burning. That's protecting the, uh, the users of the building. So we don't have to get the risk down to zero. Right. We have a question from the audience. This is from Alan Herskowitz. He wants to know, um, do we have technology like a sensor that we could install inside the rebar so we can monitor the corrosion deep within the structure? Because it seems like um, like, how are we supposed to evaluate what's going on inside that? If we if we send in a probe from the outside, are we making a micro uh, problem itself, kind of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle? We kind of affect what goes on inside, potentially to the worst. It's like a biopsy. Um, and is technology getting better where we can start to see inside um, to find out what's going on? Because even afterwards, it seems here, we still don't even know like how much rebar was in there. That's true. And it's, it's a difficult problem. We do, it's not a simple one to go inside and look. Uh, there are x-ray techniques and, and so on. You don't want to just cut holes all over the place exactly for that reason. Uh, um, but there's often some evidence on the outside. There's, there, are size, there are cracks, there are sizes of cracks. When steel starts to rust, you see staining. Many, many times I'll drive past a project, on, a, on the freeway rather, I'll drive past an overpass and I'll see a chunk of concrete that's come off the, the top of uh, above me on the overpass. Uh -huh. Years ago, I thought, oh, that's interesting. A truck must have, that was too tall must have hit it, and it, it knocked off some concrete. And now you can see the rebar starting to rust from the inside. But no, it's the other way around. The rebar started to rust because of cracks, because of handrails that were improperly installed, and the rust started to expand, and it pushed the concrete out. So you can see it. If, you know, with a, with, a, with a trained eye, there's a lot that you can tell from the outside about what probably is going on on the inside. A complete investigation, yeah, that would be very difficult. You know, it's, it's interesting you say it. I, I see often uh, new 
relatively new concrete buildings on the facades, you see cracks all over the place on the front. And then you often see they've called somebody and they put some new concrete to patch it up. You know, you can see where the patchwork has been done. Um, what, what's going on there? Well, first of all, concrete cracks. That's true. Um, and it's not a material that can easily be patched from the outside. We sometimes try and fill the cracks with epoxy yeah. or, or other things like that. But it's difficult. But has corrosion started? Maybe. In that case, maybe you do want to do a little opening up to see what's going on. But I would also look at where is this? You know, is this facing the ocean? Uh, um, you know, would I be more concerned with cracks here? We have rules for how far from the surface of the concrete the steel should be. I'd probably like to uh, review the drawings to be sure that, that that was done. We also, more recently, we use as-built drawings. That is, we, because changes take place during construction. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to know, well, what was actually built? <laughs> but you, you can't get the risk down to zero. That's true. I want to switch from water to wind for a second because, um, yeah. you know, I was I was born in Chicago and it, it's more of a windy city. Um, you know, recently they put in some new buildings and they tested for wind and they decided it was um, it didn't have enough wind stability, so they didn't build uh, a couple of the floors in the middle. There's a hole in the building, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. allowing the wind to go through. Um, what do you think about that as a, as a method of reducing um, the power of wind, and as buildings age, should large buildings consider opening up a floor to reduce the wind as, um, as, it, as its strength declines? Well, let me ask in the second part first. It's hard to go back to an existing building, especially against lateral loads of wind and seismic, and really change uh, what their resistance is without doing really major work. Um, it's, it's certainly done, but it's, it's not a trivial thing to do. Um, in terms of, of you know, the first question, you know, wind, the, the problem of wind and an earthquake at a certain level is that energy is being put into the building at an uncontrollable rate. And we'd like to use up the energy. And one of the things that uses up energy is letting the building sway, having the building move. You know, the big buildings move a few feet on really windy days. That has to be a part of the engineering. On some of the buildings, especially for wind, and that's healthy, it's the right? seasickness, it's the comfort that gets to be a problem. You know, the, the, the well-known one of, of Citicorp in New York that eventually had major problems, I won't go into the whole story, but there... Uh, tuned mass damper on the roof or at the top floor was really there for comfort initially, not for strength. They eventually decided they need to use it for strength, and so a whole bunch of things were done. But the the movement of buildings is, you know, it, it would be worth it for someone to Google uh, the Tokyo buildings in earthquakes and see how much buildings move around. It, it blows me away. I show it to my classes. It's hard to imagine that big buildings are moving the way they move, but they do. And yeah, I, I lived in Tokyo. I lived in Tokyo for a year, and there were earthquakes all the time. Uh, nothing major, yeah. just minor stuff. 
Uh, and you're right. Like you'd wake up and go, oh my goodness. Um, and I guess sway. I think what you're saying is is that allowing for sway uh, is a benefit to the building because you don't have to require. Um, it doesn't undermine the strength of, of that rebar in the concrete. It's moving around right. and it's the energy is being dissipated. You know, um, the John Hancock building in Chicago, uh, which is one of the yeah. largest buildings there, um, it really sways a lot. And as a matter of fact, if you go up to the bathroom on top of the building, um, the the water in the toilet is just moving. I mean, it's just it's it could slap you in the ass if you're you know. Um, yeah. That that really indicates that that there's a lot of sway there, and I never focus as the sway as being a benefit. But you know what? Assuming that, and I think that building was very well designed. But assuming that we're talking about a building that is well designed, when it's moving around like that, I don't expect people really to do this. But what they should be doing is saying, "Boy, am I glad this building is moving around," because that's using up a lot of energy, and that's the problem this building is having right now. And so this is good news. Look, the building is moving. Also, I'm getting seasick, but, you know, the way it goes. Let's change the subject to uh, your example of, of multiple failure, that um, the collapse of one floor resulted in the collapse of a column and then the collapse of, uh, of an entire building. And it brings to mind the World Trade Center uh, as an example yeah. of a failure. Now, this was something, obviously, they didn't design it to withstand, um, you know, a major airline uh, with all they the did actually. Fuel. They designed it to to resist the for, the physical force of a 707 airliner, not a 737, because they wouldn't exist yet. But it was actually designed for the impact of a 707. And the impact, other than local destruction, did not do major damage to the building. The building shuttered and then stopped. And it was okay, right? Uh, the problem was the fire. And the problem, one of the problems with steel is that steel, when steel gets to 1,000 degrees approximately, it turns into spaghetti. It just gets incredibly weak. It's not melting. Steel doesn't melt till 4,000 degrees, and the fire is not getting that hot. But It just lost its strength. It, it loses its strength. And in that case... The, the impact, say, I'll just use these numbers, say the impact is on the, uh, the 90th floor out of 110 stories. When the columns on that level lose their strength, a 20-story building from 90 up now falls onto the 89th floor, which is not prepared to have a building fall on it. And so it collapses, and now a 21-story building falls onto the 88th floor, and so on. That's progressive collapse, where the initial event may be sizable, but the ultimate that happens is enormous compared to it. And it came from one thing compromising the next, compromising the next, and compromising the next. It's hard to interrupt that vertically. How would you view that as a design flaw of the World Trade Center, or would you just say the World Trade Center was not designed to handle a 737 with a full uh, tank of gas? No, I think actually it's 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 a little different than that. It did did resist the 737 in terms of of the impact, and the tank of gas probably burned off in the first few seconds. 
The fire that ensued is what did the damage. And it is not easy to make a building be that it can't have fire. In this case, the impact probably blew out all of the fireproofing, the drywall and so on, around the steel, so the steel was more vulnerable. And it probably blew out all the whatever sprinklers would have been in the building to try and control the fire. And it's hard to harden those things enough Right, so we, we do change the standards and we have been trying to address that and make the buildings more resistant to things like explosion and so on, right? You know, you know I used to, um, I worked at Seven World Trade Center um, in the years before 9-11. Um, um, and I, I spoke to the CEO, Mr. Goodfriend about it. And he told me that they had put a oil tank in the basement to handle uh, a situation where power has uh, was out in New York City for an extended period of time that Sound Brothers could continue to operate, and then during mm -hmm. 9/11, um, shrapnel from the built uh, from the World Trade Center hit Seven World, started some local fires. Um, everyone was able to get out of the building safely, which is maybe your point is how it was designed. But sooner or later, the fire made its way into the basement and it hit that oil tank, and, it, and the building collapsed. And I contrast that with, there was a building that was built in the 20s, a, a brick building, um, very limited glass and steel, that was right next door um, to the Seven World Trade Center. And that building was perfectly fine. Um, how do we think about these glass and steel um, modern buildings compared to the old brick buildings in comparison in terms of, uh, of risk? Well, you know, this is, this is not only the physical risk that we're initially talking about, but it's also, you know, the sort of the economic risk. Can you really have a society that says, we're going to only build completely fireproof buildings? Mm -hmm. I mean, in Los Angeles, if you wanted to build only earthquake-proof buildings, they would be half-buried concrete one-story bunkers <laughs> with no windows, you know? And we're not going to do that. And we're not going to have a society that way. And we're, you know, we kill 30,000 people on the highway every year. Mm -hmm. And we could reduce that to zero by just making the speed limit three and enforce it. But we're just not interested in doing that. Right. And so this is a balance. And, we, and how, the risk needs to be evaluated. It needs to be looked at. We need to be conscious of it. It doesn't mean we're going to aim for zero. Uh, one last question on um, on the Surfside condo building. In the first couple of days, or maybe even the first day, um, there was discussions about the fact that the building had sunk by like two millimeters or something. And everyone said, oh, my God, that's a big deal. And I kept saying, two millimeters? I mean, my God, that seems like nothing. Who would even know? Um, was there anything to that, or was that... One of the those things. No, that kind prob of probably me. not. It, the, the the differentials. If the entire building sinks as a unit, it's a nuisance, but it's not necessarily a problem. The problem is differential settling, where one part sinks and another part isn't, and that in on brittle materials like concrete, that introduces cracks into the concrete, and it's the cracks that are your problem. Got it. Um. As you know, we end each session on a note of optimism. Marty, what are you optimistic about as it relates to structures? Well, 
This has to do with COVID and the discussion that in general is, is out there. And COVID's been awful, and I don't think we've handled it very well. I'm not going to go there. But the discussion has very much been about risk. And the word risk and the idea of risk is now a much more ordinary part of our discussion of the impact of something. The discussions about COVID are not what's the mechanics of how one cell gets affected by another. There are people who do that, but the public is not looking at that. But we do look at risk. We look at what the, the rates of hospitalization are and so on. And having the discussion turn towards risk and become an ordinary part of discussion, I think is ultimately going to be helpful to our society. Marty, thank you so much. Thank you. Our next speaker on what happens next in six minutes is Edward Glazer. Ed is the Fred and Eleanor Glenn Professor of Economics. He's also the chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. Ed is the author of the recent book that was released in September 7th, entitled Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Ed, please begin with your six-minute presentation, and that will be followed by a question and answer period. Go ahead. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, Larry. So for most of my adult life, the basic narrative was one in which cities were triumphant, that after the very difficult period of the 1970s, when uh, the twin perils of, of suburbanization and deindustrialization had brought New York City to the brink of bankruptcy, cities like New York had recovered. Now, not all of them recovered, certainly. Detroit and Cleveland were, were still in difficulty, but they became safer, but the but some cities became safer, became far more prosperous, became more expensive. And it really seemed as, as if the future was assuredly as urban as it could possibly be. Now, all of that seemed like it came crashing down in March of 2020, when, because of COVID-19, we in a sense saw the rapid-fire de-urbanization of the world. Because at their heart, cities are the absence of physical space between people. Cities are density, proximity, closeness. I wrote this book because I was worried about the urban world. I was worried about the threat of pandemic disease. And I was worried, uh, particularly as the pandemic rolled on, about the threat of remote work, meaning that people abandon offices, abandon face-to-face -face contact, and abandon cities. I am still worried, but I am not worried about urban life as a whole which I am confident will continue. But every city is vulnerable. It has never been easier for businesses and firms to uproot themselves and go somewhere else. And so the tendency of particularly those on the left in cities to see the rich as a piggy bank that can just be you know, cashed any time you want, to see firms as being something that are our problem rather than a solution to uh, cities' needs, that's deeply worrisome to me. And I think going forward, the policy parts of this book are both about fighting pandemic, which is vital for protecting our urban future, but also for providing possibilities of a, of a world in which there's more opportunity in cities, in which there's more affordability in cities, in which police treat every human being with respect and dignity, but also effectively fight crime. So the book begins with history. It begins by tracing thousands of years in which there's been a dance between death and urban life. 
from the plague of Athens that slew Pericles to the plague that, that derailed the Emperor Justinian's attempt to re-bring the, the Pax Romana back to the Mediterranean world, right? Pandemics have been part of cities. Those plagues, Athens and Constantinople, were fairly devastating to the, the civilizations that they struck. By contrast, for most of the past 650 years, our urban worlds have been quite resilient to pandemic. In the 19th century, and we do this in Chapter 3, in the 19th century, first yellow fever and then cholera struck down our, our cities, and these didn't stop urbanization from occurring. In fact, our cities rallied. Our cities built the public health technology, sewers, aqueducts, that enabled them to become much safer, that enabled them to, to continue to grow without people dying. And in a sense, the process of pragmatic collaboration is exactly what we need now. In the 19th century, that world of aqueduct building was the moment in which our governments of all levels transitioned from being overwhelmingly agents of death, which is what cities, which is what governments did prior to uh, 1800, to being agents of life, that agents that actually do good rather than doing harm. Over the past hundred years, we've had a blissful century in which we've forgotten since the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919, we've forgotten how much harm uh, diseases can do to our cities. Now we hopefully remember. And we hopefully recognize not just that our bodies are at risk, but that our economies are, are at risk as well. Over the past hundred years, as automation and outsourcing have pushed people outside of factories into the great urban service economy, the face-to-face -face work, leisure, hospitality, retail trade, where the ability to serve a latte with a smile was an employment safe haven from when the factory disappeared. But those jobs can disappear in a heartbeat when a smile becomes a source of peril rather than a source of pleasure. And so fighting to, to pandemic-proof our cities is not just about those cities. It's, it's about all of the face-to-face -face urban economy, face-to-face -face economy everywhere. Uh, because, in fact, this airborne pandemic can strike the South Dakotas as easily as it can strike uh, Brooklyn. So one part of the book is about why our health system failed so badly, because we never bothered to actually create a system that was about health. We created a financial system that was about insurance that led to a federal government that was willing to spend oceans of cash, but not actually to make decisions that would actually uh, protect life. And simultaneously, a need for a stronger international system involves monitoring the outbreak of pandemics, hopefully trying to do a little bit more in terms of getting quarantines to work effectively, uh, doing more in terms of paying for sanitary infrastructure in the developing world, uh, and then expecting as a, as a quid pro quo for that, that there will be more restrictions on the types of interactions that uh, can cause disease. The impact of every natural disaster is mediated by the strength of civil society when it strikes. And America's cities were much less robust in 2020 than they were in 2001 when uh, the terrorists struck the Twin Towers. They're much less robust because cities appear to have been doing a very poor job of taking care of their poorest citizens. They appear to be doing a very poor job of making sure that the police treat everyone with decency. And they seem to be doing a very poor job of providing affordable housing for everyone. So in some sense, the book is a cry for a pragmatic agenda of making our cities effective 
at doing what cities are always supposed to be. They're supposed to be places where poor people can turn into middle class or rich adults. And that has been happening too rarely. And so we're really calling for more freedom, fewer limitations on the ability to build, because only private sector development can deliver the types of and the amounts of housing that we need for our cities to become truly affordable. We need to actually take effective government more seriously. The right answer in 2021 is not more government or less government, but better government. At the local level, right, and at the national level as well, this requires actually finding out what works. In some cases, we have reasonably good solutions. So in the case of policing, uh, we need something like a dual mandate, just like the Fed, where you have you know, a mandate to both stop crime, a mandate to uh, preserve, uh, treat everyone decently. You need to have mechanisms that create incentives for that, like uh, regular surveys of people to ask them how they're being treated with decency. Um, and then we need to fire police chiefs who don't manage to, to deliver on the dual mandate. But, of course, I believe very strongly you don't get something for nothing. And if you want police to both be nicer to everyone and to stop crime, you've got to pay them more. Uh, you've got to go the opposite of defunding the police. And I think that's what pragmatism requires. In the case of upward mobility, schools are our primary channel. And here I think we have to admit that we don't know what works. One of the things that we, we emphasize over and over in this book is that you need to have the humility to learn to effectively change the quality of government, to effectively fight pandemic. Um, in the case of schooling, we fought from top-down schooling reform movements for the past 20 years and been fairly ineffective at moving the needle. For all the fanfare of No Child Left Behind or Race to the Top, uh, they didn't really solve the problem of underperforming urban schools. They didn't really solve the problem of America as a whole undereducating its children. So I think we have to recognize that we need to have something more like an Apollo program than like a Marshall Plan where we don't just spend, but we recognize that we've got to learn what works here. My own personal preference would be to bypass the existing educational establishment entirely and do more with after-school programs that are competitively sourced to train vocational skills like programming or like plumbing. And then you pay for performance for the, for the schools that do it. I am fundamentally optimistic about the future of the city. There is just so much to like about face-to-face -face contact. There's so much to like about learning from another when we're close to one another. That type of learning that has been powering urban miracles since Socrates and, and Plato bickered on an Athenian street corner. And, you know, I believe that the age of urban miracles is not gone and that cities will continue to create the collaborative chains of, of invention that have powered humanity's greatest hits for millennia. Thank you. Ed, thank you. All right, let's start with Nicholas Bloom. We had him on uh, What Happens Next a few months ago, and he highlighted that he thought that using the office would still exist but would just change or adapt based on these new technologies. Um, he thought that maybe what you would do is um, come in three days a week, two days mm -hmm. a week specifically with your own department and maybe a, a firm-wide sort of day out uh, one day a week. Um, how do you think about – now, what's so interesting about that is that the needs for office space would radically change, and given the inelastic um, supply of, of office, it could result in radical changes in price, um, which would make it more um, – if prices went down, it would make it more appealing to come to urban environments. How do you think about Nicholas Bloom's uh, predictions? So uh, I think he's exactly right that what you're likely to see in expensive – office markets is much more adjustment along the price margin than along the quantity margin, meaning that 
you know, let's say we thought that there was a um, you know significant drop in demand for Class A commercial space in Manhattan, uh, prices could drop down by 10, 15, 20 percent, but you know the office towers are still going to be occupied. They might be occupied by slightly different businesses, right? So we might see a little bit less of well-established uh, financial service firms locating there, and maybe a few more scrappy startups. Um, I think that you're, the place where you're more likely to see real disruptions from this are in the markets where office rents were 20 bucks, 25 bucks a square foot to begin with, markets like Buffalo or Cleveland or Detroit. And in those areas, a drop in price could actually lead to you know, significant vacancies, which would then ripple through uh, the ecosystem. Um, in your book, Triumph of the City, you talk about the, the benefits of concentration of similar sort of workers. And I remember a discussion about Silicon Valley specifically. It, one of the great things about Silicon Valley is that if you were a computer programmer and lived there, you, you would, um, you'd get like a, higher, uh, a higher wage, the geographical benefit of having specific skills in a certain area. But, mm-hmm. with, this, um, but with Zoom, the, the employer and the employee can benefit from not being in Silicon Valley. How do you think about both the national and global aspects of being able to use talent in a much more efficient way? So I think it's quite, you know, this is clearly a bonanza for highly educated people who don't live in Silicon Valley. That's, that's entirely right. Um, and it's a bonanza for, you know, m- many highly skilled, for example, Indian software engineers were also fairly fully connected, but this only makes things better for them. It's interesting, in fact, what this means for the fortunes of Silicon Valley um, and for the San Francisco area more generally, because it, it does actually two things, one of which is it levels the playing field with places like Austin, Texas, right, because you can actually, you know, access the same amount of information, but you also can, it also makes it possible for you to live further and further out on the edges of Silicon Valley and only come in two days a week or only come in three days a week and the commute becomes somewhat bearable. So uh, I'm not sure if Silicon Valley loses on net from this or uh, actually wins. Let's talk about education. How, how do you think the future of education will look like uh, balancing online and uh, being in person. So it's clear that the, there was huge demand during this pandemic for virtual courses. So uh, there is a segment of population that really benefits from online education that's usually pretty energetic and interested in it. I mean, uh, you know, face-to-face connection is a huge part of getting a kid who isn't highly motivated uh, to pay some form of attention to what you're doing. And I include that my own, you know, Harvard undergraduates, that, you know, getting, getting a 19-year-old, no matter how bright they are, excited about mathematical economics is not always the easiest thing to do in the, thing in the world. And it's certainly a lot harder over Zoom. Nothing beats the magic of face-to-face connection, whether in the workplace or in the classroom. I want to switch topics to the CDC. In what ways did the CDC fail to protect us? And how can the CDC apply economics to save lives? It's clearly a huge mistake, is our failure to protect the nursing homes, right? The fact that, that you know, this is a disease that kills the elderly and the vulnerable, and we did so little to protect the elderly and the vulnerable. And relative to the cost of everything else, relative to the cost of various lockdown-type policies for the economy, right? it would have cost a tiny fraction to just pay all of our nursing home workers double and triple time to get them to make sure that they basically stay at the nursing home, they don't bring diseases from nursing home to nursing home, and uh, we basically isolate and protect the, the oldest and the frailest. All right, let's go in a completely different direction. Um, in reading the Wall Street Journal review of your book, they focus heavily on land use. Uh, this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Um, 
can you give us a little background about the errors in government policy that have limited land use for new construction of homes um, and effectively driven up the price uh, of real estate, particularly for young people? So I see this with a, you know, I, I see this with, with as a as a 50-year change where America has become increasingly prone to protecting its insiders and to ignoring its outsiders. You know, and I think of this in light of Manker Olson's Rise and Decline of Nations, which he wrote in 1982. And when I read that in graduate school, it tells a tale of how stable societies are increasingly taken over by well-organized interest groups that basically screw over outsiders and lead to stagnation. That's his, his sort of epic sweep. When I read this in the early 1990s, coming fresh off of the Reagan Revolution in America, it just felt completely wrong to me just felt like this is not the America that I know, which is full of sort of vibrant openness to entrepreneurs, to, to newcomers, of all sorts of people. 30 years on, I think that there's a lot to like about Manker Olson's viewpoint and a lot to dislike about how it's played out in America. And land use planning is a queer area. We used to be following standard common law traditions that if you owned a plot of land, you could pretty much do what you wanted with that land, including building on it, right? And gradually, we ate away with that, not insensibly with, you know, let's say the New York uh, zoning ordinance of 1916, which didn't actually restrict heights, but it did restrict the ability to cast a shadow. So the buildings had to get narrower as you rise to the skies, which gives us the ziggurat feel that is so typical in buildings of that time period. Then you had Euclidean zoning in the 1920s, which tried to separate out buildings by usage. So you have commercial uh, housing that's separated from industrial housing, which is separated from residential housing. And increasingly, a different set of tools have been used by different groups to protect the status quo. In the East Coast, in cities, historic preservation, which started going in a major way in the 1960s. And, you know, great swaths of whole neighborhoods are now allocated to historic preservation districts in which basically nothing can be changed in those areas. In the West and outside of cities, uh, an environmental justification is often given, whether or not it's saving the uh, San Francisco Bay or uh, some other cause about protecting trees and suburbs. The irony about that often is that these alleged environmental reasons actually are somewhat counterproductive environmentally. Uh, there's a lot to like about dense construction close to city centers uh, in terms of being good for the environment, in terms of reducing carbon emissions because you have less driving, in terms of people living typically in smaller houses if you build up urban areas. And so um, often these, these, you know, the, the environmental movement has often you know, done harm to the environment in coastal California, which is intrinsically the greenest part of America because it has such a temperate climate, it's the lowest carbon emissions, by restricting the amount of development in, let's say, the San Francisco Bay region drastically, they've ensured that you know, there still is more development, but it goes on outside of Houston, in Oklahoma, outside of uh, Las Vegas, in places that are much harder to, you know, to cool uh, and um, often involving much more driving. So small local organizations have basically figured out how to use the tools of local government to shut new building down that they're often depicted as heroes, and the greedy developers who want to build are often depicted as, as villains. But the amazing thing about you know, the free market is often you know, people who may look like greedy villains end up serving a larger social good, which is providing ordinary housing for decent Americans at a reasonable price. 
And you still get that in Houston, and you don't get that in San Francisco. And that's because Houston ultimately has hewed more closely to the older ethos of basically letting the people build. And that's proved to be much more beneficial for outsiders than the idea that you're going to just protect everyone who is now in the city's views and comfort. And, you know, if people can't afford to live there, then so be it. So, you know, using Olson as, uh, as a backdrop... Um, California and Massachusetts both have been big users of, of land use regulation and, and Texas has not. And the result is, is an enormous boom in population in Texas uh, and Florida and uh, much less population growth in places like Massachusetts and California. Is that just another way of saying uh, this is how the market will work? If you put in restrictions and jack up price, young people will find themselves moving to to Texas, and will that be a self-correcting process as that obviously takes place, or are there enormous frictions related to people who are born and raised in California with desiring to remain there and therefore accepting a lower standard of living? Well, I, I think we should, you know, we should worry about Americans not moving to places that are more productive anymore. Throughout most of our history, the stone walls in the, in the land outside of my home here, which were walls when this land was farmed, in the, in the 18th century. No one farmed it for 180 years because it's crappy land to farm. And it, the farmers went west to the Ohio River Valley or you know, they, they went further on to Iowa or, or to, to Illinois. Um, all of these things have been you know, in America on the move or you know, most dramatically think about the great migration north of African Americans fleeing the Jim Crow South. All of these things could happen because the, the receiving communities made room for these people. We don't do that anymore. We have migrations driven often by the availability of inexpensive housing. Uh, so that's fine. I'm glad that that inexpensive housing is available. There's a lot to like about Texas, for goodness sakes. But it seems problematic when Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, places which by most observable measures are some of the most productive places on the planet, they don't allow growth. And the country as a whole suffers in terms of its productivity because of it. How so, do you think about... Um, you know, this 70-year period of populations moving out of uh, the cities and, and into uh, suburban exurbia. And how do you see those trends changing? We have always built our urban spaces uh, around the transportation technology that was dominant in that era. Our, our oldest cities are, are walking cities with narrow streets and, and often winding paths. Our 19th century cities are built around various forms of, of wheeled transport, uh, streetcars, then elevated railroads, that enabled cities to stretch much further, but still meant you had to walk from wherever the, the train or the streetcar dropped you off to your final destination. In the 20th century, the car was completely dominant, and for totally understandable reasons, right? I mean, the average commute by car in this country is typically about half the time of, of the average commute by public transportation, in part because you don't have that 15 to 20-minute time fixed cost involved in walking to the train, waiting for the train, and walking from the train. Um, and so we radically rebuilt our urban spaces around the car. And this was the big story from, let's say, 20, 1950 to 1980, right? Totally dominant. And there's no sense that the success of cities after 1980 and coming back meant that the dominant population growth was not during the suburbs. That continued to be so. How should we think about the decision of African-Americans 
to move down south, um, reversing that African African American migration um, for reasons of employment, education, and safety. Well, I, I think the, that the the story of the Great Migration North is should be seen as, as very bitter, bittersweet by the African American population. So it was an amazing thing for people like. Richard Wright to come to Chicago in, in the 1920s and 1930s and experience a world that was completely shut off to them in the Jim Crow South, a world of employment, a world of ideas, a world of possibilities. Um, and that was utterly amazing, and there were, there were jobs there for them. Now, flash forward a generation or two. Right? Those same cities, especially after white flight occurred, ended up being fairly terrible places to uh, have children especially for the African-American community. Partially that was racial segregation. So whereas for many of us, part of the great benefits of the city are the fact that we interact with huge numbers of different people, of different, uh, of different races, of different levels of education, of different occupations, right? The world of a segregated child is very different. If you wake up in a segregated housing project and go to a segregated school, it's like you're in a village. You're not experiencing any of that. Leaving these cities, which once seemed so bright for someone else, unfortunately makes sense. And it will make sense as long as cities fail, I mean, even more than the failures in policing or the failures in affordable housing, is the failures of urban schooling to provide upward mobility for you know, ordinary, uh, ordinary kids and especially for, for African-American children. Hopefully, they will find both short-run employment, which of course they, they are finding, the, the, the Latino community, but hopefully the cities of 2030 or 2040 will do better for their children than the cities of 1970 or 1980 did for the children of the African-American migrants. But that's part of our goal in terms of vocational training is to make that possible. You know, you talked about the demonization of our wealthiest uh, city goers. The property has been attacked. Many of them are are planning to leave these big cities um, for low-tax, safer places in the South. in your opening remarks, you mentioned that you know we need to we can't throw these guys out because they provide so much both human and physical capital to the cities and cultural capital as well. Yes. Um, why are why are the wealthy under such attack by the progressives right now? And what can be done to encourage uh, these uh, individuals to stick around and encourage the growth of the cities? So that's that was one of the things that motivated uh, uh, the book was this this deep worry about the fact that cities seem to have forgotten that the rich and businesses are mobile, and they've only become more mobile thanks to, to Zoom, thanks to remote work. Um, so the, I think the reason for this, the reason why this, this comes up, is, is a real frustration with the pace of progressive change by many people on the left, and an understandable frustration with the inequality of American society and the lack of upward mobility in cities. You know, cities have always been unequal places, right? I mean, it, it was Plato who wrote 2,400 years ago that, you know, every city was whatever size, in reality, two cities, one a city of the rich, the other the city of the poor, and they are perpetually at war with one another. Uh, cities, in fact, urban inequality is not something that cities should be ashamed of. Cities attract the rich by being relatively pleasant places to be rich, and they, you know, attract the poor by being relatively tolerable places to be poor. That's not something that's an urban problem. Those are urban assets. But that level of, of inequality is only tolerable if cities are continuing to do their historic job of turning poor children into rich adults. 
And unfortunately, the Opportunity Atlas data of Raj Chetty and his co-authors shows that cities are really not doing a very good job of this along lots of different dimensions in lots of different ways. Um, and so that combines with frustration at the police, frustration about um, the high cost of, of living, and frustration with national politics as well, right, which until uh, the election of Joe Biden was something which certainly you know, infuriated many people on the left. And so local politics seems like an outlet. But if you want to tax the rich and give to the poor, the right level of government to do that is the federal government. Right, because it's much harder to run away from America than it is to run away from Chicago or to run away from Seattle. Uh, you really should not be using local government, the local government, to redistribute. You should be using the local government to try and solve the core tasks of local government. If you do decide this is something where where the real goal is to, is to demonize the wealthy and and treat them poorly, then they will leave, and cities will be much the worse for it. Um, the uh, economist you you hold dear heart is Jane Jacobs. Um, and what is it about her work that you think has most relevance today? So Jane was an economist. Jane just didn't have a didn't have a college degree. Um, Jane is just a peerless urbanist, and, and you know she she just had eyes that saw clearly what was functioning in cities. So um, the 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 fantastic things about Jane, which are uh, are in death and life of great American cities. Um, you know, it's her observing you know, the, the ballet of the sidewalk, as she discusses it, understanding the ways that people who live in cities interact with the streets around them, understanding the strange and unpredictable things that happen in cities and how things that look inefficient in cities actually produce sort of remarkable long-run benefits that, you know, there's, there's always something inefficient about being in the office relative to being home and at, at Zoom. But you know, surprising things happen at the office that enable us to, to learn more from each other and, and to actually just have more fun. And I think that's part of what she was recognizing was that cities, despite their seeming inefficiencies, had hidden strengths that led to long-run creativity and long-run vitality. One of my favorite segments from that uh, Jane Jacobs book was a description of a grandmother, I think, sitting on a on a balcony on a second floor walk up in the village and making sure that there was no trouble in the street. And if there was trouble, she would quickly call the police. How do you think about that observation about how, um, how to control crime and, and misbehavior on the streets? You know, it's funny. I wrote a whole paper that was inspired by that. You looking at, um, victimization data, people who live in, um, high rises are much more likely to be victimized on the street, but much less likely to be burgled than people who live in low-rise dwellings in, in cities. So it really did seem to support Jane Jacobs' notion that um, you know, being too separated from the space, the space on the ground made it difficult to uh, observe those people. It doesn't mean high-rises are, are bad, but it does mean you have a larger um, public safety problem to deal with when people actually can't monitor the streets. Um, I don't know how many neighborhoods actually look like what she described, mm -hmm. which was the sort of typical New York neighborhood of the 1950s, where you have a bunch of people in sort of these walk-up units where, you know, there's not, nothing all that entertaining to do anywhere else. You're looking at the street, you look at your kids playing on the street. It's a wonderful description of a time period. Uh, I'm just not sure how much it, it persists. But the view that streets are safe when there are people using it, using them is certainly true. Right, and that continues to be to be the case. That um, you know, it's, it's eyes on the street are, are what creates a, a sense of, of urban safety. Um, we end each session on a note of optimism. Uh, what are you optimistic about as it relates to your topic, uh, broadly defined to be the economics of cities? 
Oh, I think that the you know uh, cities have shown a remarkable ability to survive much much worse than this, and I think that the the value of information rich environments that promote some degree of opportunity for young people who are outsiders, um, the demand for those spaces is not going to go away. And cities provide the space in which we can really make our future, in which we can learn from people around us. And I will say personally, so I've been back in the office since mid-August, and it has been just such a source of not just joy for me, but I think joy for everyone just to be around each other again and to remember how much we gain from connection to other human beings. And that completely makes me optimistic. Ed, thank you very much. All right, um, that ends today's session. Uh, I want to make a plug for our next episode. Our first speaker on October 3rd will be Alan Guelzo. He is the director of the James Madison Program Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship at Princeton University. Previously, he was the Henry Luce Professor of the Civil War Era at Gettysburg College. Alan spoke previously on what happens next about the monuments controversy, and he will be back next week to discuss his new book, which will be released later this week, which is a biography of Robert E. Lee. Uh, Needless to say, Lee is a very controversial historical figure, and I hope to go into detail about the leading general for the Confederacy. Our second speaker will be Elliot Higgins, who started an organization called Bellingcat that works with volunteers to solve war crimes using open source video and data. They have successfully exposed some of the major atrocities of the past few years, including proving that a Russian missile shot down a Malaysian airliner over the Ukraine, as well as uh, Russian agents using a biological weapon uh, to kill a target on British soil. I hope to learn from Elliot how he has put together an organization with thousands of volunteers that it successfully solves crimes faster than the best law enforcement agencies. If you are interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you very much, and you can disconnect. Bye-bye.